Today, my guest is Paul Hawken. Paul is an environmentalist, entrepreneur, author, and activist. Paul is the author of at least eight books, many articles, blog posts. President Bill Clinton called his book, Natural Capitalism, one of the five most important books today. Paul is an accomplished speaker. He's also an entrepreneur and a humanitarian. Paul's latest book is called Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Paul was recently a guest on Bill Mayer's show. Bill called humanity, Thelma and Louise driving right into the canyon, hoping some great big machine is going to soak up all our pollution and save us. Hawken calls this the silver bullet mentality. One of the things that I love about Paul is that he is very focused on possibilities. He recognizes that ultimately fear is ineffective to drive us to any kind of lasting, meaningful change and instead recognizes that every problem we face, either personally or as a society, is ultimately a solution in disguise. Although Paul didn't write this book, Drawdown, to give hope, he calls hope the pretty mask of fear, saying instead that we must be fearless, not hopeful. I think you'll find something in Paul's interview here, something in Paul's writing, that will help you to live more fully, more fearlessly. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Paul, I want to start with a question. It's one of my favorite questions to begin. What's life about? Life's about creating the conditions for life. That's what life is. That's what it does. That's what it's always done. We're life. And that's what makes our life meaningful and gives us gratitude, gives us enjoyment, gives us fulfillment, gives us meaning, gives us purpose. Um, gives us a sense that we belong as opposed to our outsiders or, you know, like alienated or disillusioned or loners. It gives us a sense of community, connection. It gives us a sense of humility or, you know, that it's such a complex, uh, wondrous, miraculous thing that we are connected to and creating the conditions that are conducive to life. And that's what life does in real life. So, I think people know it, excuse me, knew it instinctively when we are, certainly when we are hunter-gatherers, you know, and that doesn't mean they didn't take, you know, there wasn't conflict. But I'm just saying is that as hunting-gathering communities, you know, they were so dependent on the interrelationship they had with their surroundings, with their environment. And they learned the hard way or the good way, one way or the other, they learned how to interact with that environment, respect it, so that it was sustained, uh, so that they were sustained. And so therefore, again, it was that interconnectedness that they learned and embedded in their customs and their mores and in their language. So that science, cosmology, and, and, and food, and uh, you know, history were all inseparable. Whereas in English, they're categorized and siloed, especially since the Victorian period. 
Yeah, I was just about to ask you when did that change, which I know built into that question is the assumption that it did, <laughs> right? But um, instead, I want to ask this, is everything alive? Well, um, it depends how you look at it. I mean, in terms of biology, no. I mean, a rock isn't alive. Um, but if you step back conceptually only, but if you step back and look at the universe and say, well, is it alive or is the planet alive? Then you're dealing with a different definition of life because you're, what you're dealing with is time spans. In other words, because a rock or rocks, for example, become life, you know, when they're broken down by the bacteria that seeds on the exudates from plants, you know, that then make the rock bioavailable to the root and of the and it goes up into the food and goes into the human and so forth. So when again you get to that level of so connectedness, it's really difficult to see where life leaves off and and so-called non-life begins. And I know that when you look at, say, root structures, you know, you can have a plant and if you actually do the, if you could actually calculate, you know, um, the length of the roots and, and again, the hair roots, the tiny, tiny roots that you never see really. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of miles for one plant. And, um, and literally soil scientists will say, or at least have said that, you cannot distinguish when a root leaves off and soil begins. In other words, there isn't that bright line. And so if there's not a bright line there, then how could there be otherwise? Since all of us, every little creature on, on the planet d depends on food in some sort of fashion and on photosynthesis and on plants. And all plants depend on soil, and soil is the most complex ecosystem in the world, more complex than oceans, more complex, one square inch of soil is more complex than any wetland, any um, um, forest, tropical rainforest, a square inch of soil has more different organisms and the interactions are more complex. So when you look at it that way, then the mm, distinction between biology and then you know, limnology and, you know, climatology and all these different ologies, basically scientific disciplines actually break down. It's amazing to look at it that way because there's this case then that science really validates maybe what indigenous wisdom has always known about the interconnectedness or the inseparability of, of things, of life. Um, I want to explore this a little further, but before we go much further, um, I want to ask you if you will share with me and with those who are listening, when people ask you who you are and what you do, what do you say? How do you answer that question usually? Well, usually no one asks me that. They think that it's the other way around. They think that they actually know what I do and who I am and what I stand for because there's all these books and articles and stuff out there. You know? So far, usually what you run into is, is Paul Hawken is a, a they already have a, an idea of, of what that means, that name, you know, and so forth. Um, and so it's very, it's very rare that anybody asks, actually. And you say, like, when people ask, I can't remember anybody asking that question. Um, but I do think it, it, it speaks to sort of the ineffable, which is that, you know, all of us are making this up as we go along. 
Okay, we can get hard coded, so to speak, or you know, sort of um, rigidly attached to our identity, and then try to replicate our own identity of all things, which doesn't really exist anyway, except in our mind. But you know, and the identity then is something that other people project back onto us because we we put it forward in the world, and so there is this sort of um, <clears throat> back and forth, but. The fact is that we're all the same in the sense that we, our identity doesn't exist. It's just made up. It's just make believe. And so the question is, what are you doing here? You know, as consciousness. And and for me, it's uh, it's about learning. It's about curiosity. I'm ju- I'm just fascinated by where I am. I mean, I, I'm just I have no idea how it works. And and I think. Many people would say, I, I don't necessarily agree with them. They would say, well, you know, your mind is very quick and fast and you're smart and all that sort of stuff. Actually, I feel like I'm really slow. And which is like, I look at something, I read it, I read things about it, I hear things, I'll talk. It takes me a long time actually to figure out what the heck is going on. And I think a lot of my writings are about coming to a point where I think I do understand something and then I'll write it down and share it as opposed to, well, I know and here's what I know. It's actually the way around. When I propose a book to my publisher, it's really about going to school. I mean, and it's a learning exercise for me. And the the great thing about being a journalist, whether you know self-appointed or otherwise, the great thing about being a journalist is that you know you don't know. You don't go you don't go into something saying I know. Well, some do, but you don't go into it and saying I know, and therefore you know tell me what it is that's going to reinforce what I know. I mean, you go into it ideally with an empty vessel, with a, a mind that's like like listening, totally listening or observing or both, you know, and out of that comes a, a conclusion or an observation or an understanding that is original, that you didn't know yourself, you know, you didn't know it. You might recognize it, recognize it in the sense that on some deeper level you knew that, but, um, you, it's, you know, you don't, go into it with this attitude that I know. And so that's what I love about what I do. And that's why I've never written what I call son of book. And you you see, or daughter of book, you see people that write a book, it's successful. And then they write another book, which is kind of a variation of that. Another book is a variation of that, and a variation, a variation, a variation. I'm not remotely interested in writing variations of my own books, you know, because to me, they're complete. And um, I don't want to sound like a dilettante, but I want to move on and and go to some new area where there's curiosity discovery and also i'd say relevance you know to others you know no it's not just relevant to my curiosity but relevant to the world as a whole yeah no and i i think your books definitely do that um and that attitude by the way that you're saying about a journalist you know goes in with an open mind and without preconceived notions is really um the attitude of a scientist too should right, be. going, yeah, yeah. I- ideally. <laughs> so you right. work with big corporations, yeah. Yeah, publishing. They already know the outcome of the paper before it's published. Where did you learn that? Or 
Why is that a part of your makeup, that kind of perspective? Brad, it's interesting you asked that question because I'm not sure when it happened or what the question was, but during the, since um, Drawdown was published in April 2017, at one point somebody asked me a question and I, for the life of me, cannot remember the question. But I do remember the answer, which is an answer I'd never even occurred to me or thought of before, much less given. And the answer was that when I was a child, uh, my home was very dangerous. It was not a safe place to be. So um, I spent as much time as I could outdoors. And there's a difference between indoors and outdoors. Indoors, no matter how young you are, you can master it really quickly. There's a refrigerator, there's light switches, you know, there's your bed, you know, if you have a TV, you turn it on and off. I mean, there's not much to master in a house and you can do it really quickly. Outside is the opposite, which is it's infinitely varied, varied and mysterious. And so when I was outside, I noticed that I didn't know anything and no one was telling me and there was no switches. And so whether it was leaves or bugs or insects or birds or sounds or, or textures or stones or rocks or, you know, you know, things growing in the water and wiggling and, you know, um, whatever it was, I knew I didn't know the name of it or what it was doing or how it worked. And so what happened is that it developed an intense curiosity. So the blessing of having a dangerous, unsafe home was that it pushed me outside. And so outside, you learn that you don't know, first of all, very important. And second, that it's endlessly uh, if not infinitely varied uh, and diverse. Um, and that gives you a, a sense of the world that's different than the one you get indoors, which is in a sense programmed by kind of a simplified environment, which is clean and antiseptic and bug-free and animal-free and bird-free and leaf-free. You know, it's free of so-called of nature, but it's also in it is the inputs, which is TV, radio, you know, media, and so most human beings are comprised of those two, um, if you will, one's an environment, but one is what comes into the environment, which is part of that environment. And that's how their mind is shaped. Their mind is shaped um, by these influences, you know? And so if you're outside, your mind is shaped by different influences. And then when you go inside, whether it's your home or somebody else's home or a company, a business, a store, or, you know, a strip mall, whatever, then you have um, a very, very different sense of what's going on, you know. And you look at it with kind of wonder and like, well, what's going on and what's, you know, what are, why are people acting this way and why are they buying this and all that sort of stuff. In other words, you, it's actually kind of confusing to go back from what I call the natural world into the indoor world. Yeah, I think that too, <laughs> very often. You know, something that I, I'm really curious to get your your view about is, you know, with what's what's going on in the world today. Um, and one of the things, and I feel like, I felt like a little kid reading your books, um, reading Drawdown. And, um, and by the way, I wanted to share with you, I have a friend who, who read Natural Capitalism and ended up uh, going to the Presidio 
school, I believe it's the Presidio School of Management where Hunter Lovins teaches uh-huh. because of that book. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. So anyway, when I told him I'd be talking with you, but there were, yeah, so many things that I learned from reading, reading your books and even things like the, I think it was reindeer that live in hundred degree below temperatures. Uh, your cushion horses. Yeah. The, the horses, the cushion horses and Cushion horses. Yeah. And how the delicate balance of life and just so many different things. And, and so one of the things that I read that, you know, to be honest, I hadn't thought about. And when I, I read it, um, you know, it, it, it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense was about these natural disasters that we're experiencing will not, not only continue, but intensify. And it was like, yeah, I mean, I'd climate had the sense that it was climate change, um, but hadn't really thought a lot about it. Just when, you know, I think as many people do living in the, the, the convenient ignorance, you know, in some ways. Indoors, yeah. Yeah, indoors and stuff like that. And um, so the, the, the one thing that I was really interested to get your view about was something that I heard um, Robert Reich talk about on a Facebook post he made about the, the inputs of social change. And, and he mentioned that if three conditions are met, social change happens. Like it's not sometimes, it's basically like a law saying that number one, the, there's a huge disparity between the ideal and the real. So whether it's social justice or climate, you know, conditions or whatever, if this, and, and clearly we're there, you know, that there's this, the second is that it's broadly known. And obviously we're there. I mean, there's still, there's some deniers and things like that, but I think generally we, we know. And he said, but the third condition, and I think this is maybe where we're lacking in making, um, I don't want to say meaningful change because I think we are, but, um, is people, the third condition is that people must feel they can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if how much of that, what's your view of how much individuals feeling like, oh, I'm insignificant. What I do doesn't matter. Yeah. In the aggregate it does, of course, but I'm just one person. Like what's your view of, um, people really feeling powerless and what do you, as the reason that maybe we haven't, you know, acknowledged or turned some of these challenges around that we're facing. And what do you say to people like that? It's, it's interestingly complex and simple, both at the same time. The, the messaging around global warming, um, first of all, has been a message about climate change. And that's, that's a kind of a scientific blooper because what you have is, you know, uh, sport, sports and war metaphors being used constantly about climate change. We have to tackle it. We have to fight it. We have to combat it. Um, and which kind of makes Don Quixote look like a pragmatist. Climate is supposed to change. Deniers say that, but actually they're right about that one, but it's not uh, um, meant to deny its validity so much as to say climate is a dynamic. And like, therefore you cannot fight a dynamic. Um, You can't tackle it. You can't combat it. You can't, I, the word, another word that's used is mitigate and curb. And all these verbs are really, really, what are you left with when you hear a, a verb like mitigate climate change? What are you supposed to do and think? Mitigate is, means to reduce the pain and seriousness of something. And, um, and so that's the first problem right there, which is the language we use around it is wrong both in terms of the object and in terms of the verb, um, the verbs. Um, we're talking about global warming here. And when the earth warms, 
uh, which it's doing, it changes the circulation patterns of the air. The air is always moving, okay? It's moving, as we know, from west to east. And that was another thing from your book, by the way, that the wind doesn't blow, <laughs> that the air is drawn. Yeah, exactly. Right? I was like, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, from uh, a low pressure, it draws it from high pressure areas. And so there's always this, you know, dynamic on the earth. And one of the dynamics is the movement of air. So when it's warmer, two things happen. The air moves differently, like it did this year, you know, incredibly so. The jet stream is called also. It's like circulation, you know, like a big river in the sky. Of, of, and, and also what changes is the amount of water it can hold. That is to say, warmer air holds more water, and and more water goes up in when when um, the earth is warmer. So then you have um, uh, basically the hydrologic cycle is getting very very uh, um, volatile. So you have bigger rain, bigger floods, and you also you have bigger droughts due to the fact that the normal pattern of the jet stream is now changed. And so what normally would have brought rain or monsoon or depending on where you are in the world is no longer happens and so forth. So these are all, these are all th things that are happening. The way we're communicating it to each other um, makes people feel like, well, what can I do? Yeah. And by the way, on your Twitter uh, profile, I see that one of your descriptors is word giver. Yeah. Right. I love that. And maybe this is an appropriate time to talk about that. Well, it is because what we know is that if you use fear, threat, doom, gloom as a messaging tool, its constancy and relentlessness will not create fight or flight, which is, you know, in other words, fight for something, you know, or, or run for your life. In the case of climate change, it, cre it creates free, numb and freeze and uh, flight. It, 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 I call it freeze and flight. In other words, people just f get, f get frozen by it like because they feel powerless. Um, or they flee from the information, flight in a different sort, which is I, I can't handle it. I don't want to know about it. I'm... A mom, I'm single, I have a mortgage, you know, I have two children, one has a learning disability. My mom looks like she has, you know, my mom looks like she's getting uh, Alzheimer's, I could be wrong. I mean, this is not unusual for somebody. That's the kind of life they're living. And so you're going in and saying, hey, listen up, you know, we're, we're in big trouble in terms of climate change and you've got to tackle it. It's just so absurd to think that that's going to cause engagement or involvement or um, the desire to learn. Or even understanding, right? Or understanding, yeah. And so that's why you have 99% of the world is disengaged from the most momentous, um, critical crisis this civilization has ever faced. And, and <laughs> it's really due to communication. And so... The problem with the communication is that it doesn't discuss possibility. And so the Project Rada and Rada itself was founded on a basic premise, which is that every problem is a solution in disguise. It's, it is exactly what a problem is. It wouldn't be a problem 
if it didn't beg for a solution, a change, a difference. And so that's what problems are. This is the most gnarly, super wicked problem anybody's ever come up with. And in this case, it's the most uh, extraordinary scientific endeavor in human history, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And um, so they have described this problem so, so well. They've described it in ways which is almost unintelligible to people, but it doesn't mean the science isn't great. It is. But what they haven't done is describe the possibilities that are latent in global warming. And so what Drawdown did is did two things. First of all, name the goal. What do we want to do here? We want to reverse it. We don't want to combat it, tackle it, curb it, mitigate it. You know, all these, all those words are saying we want to make it less bad or at least not as bad as it's going to be sooner. So we'd rather have it bad later. I mean, none of those words are motivating. And so we name the goal, which is, well, if it's warming and the consequences are threatening to civilization, then we should say, let's stop and go the other way. So that's reversal. And the second thing is we wrote a book and created you know, models that are really about possibility, which is, huh, God, what an interesting problem. So what can we do about it? And what are the impacts of that? And what does that do for humanity, community, water, children, the future, for cities, habitat, all the ways in which we involve uh, ourselves in community and the environment and this earth? And it turns out that virtually all of them, with a couple exceptions, uh, are what we call no regret solutions, which is what we would want to do and are doing them, by the way, I might add, uh, if we didn't understand anything about climatology or extreme weather, because they have so many benefits uh, for the world. And so, I mean, that is just a shift in, in language. It's like pointing out instructions, which sometimes you hear teachers give, which is point this way, and, and students go, oh, great. In this case, what we're pointing out is that humanity is brilliant. It's on the case. The solutions we model are all in hand, at hand, known, well-practiced, growing, scaling, uh, have almost universally economic benefits. I mean, there was dollar in, dollar out, um, and we know how to do them. And if they continue to scale over 30 years, we can achieve and reach that point in time when greenhouse gases peak and go down, which is the definition of drawdown. I think what you're sharing is such um, an amazing insight about the inefficacy of fear, ultimately, about, you know, a lot of the fear-based approach ignores possibility. And, you know, I love what you say um, in the beginning of drawdown, which was such a radical shift for me from any way I'd heard of global warming discussed when you say, Consider that global warming is happening for us, an atmospheric transformation that inspires us to change and reimagine, and reimagine everything we make and do. We begin to live in a different world. We see global warming not as an inevitability, but as an invitation to build, innovate, and affect change, a pathway that awakens creativity, compassion, and genius. That, to me, like I said, that's, I've never heard it talked about like that way. It's always been, pretty much always been like, we're all screwed, <laughs> doom and gloom. Yeah. You know, at best we can slow it or, you know, we could pass more legislation or, or, or stuff like this, but this makes it, this book makes it very human for me and very exciting. It was cool to see, 
you know, all the, like you said, brilliance, that humanity really is brilliant, very creative and, and very, um, just very insightful. You know, I, I can barely imagine uh, editing, creating a book like this, where the team um, that was a part of it was massive. Will you talk a little bit about um, how you went about, I don't know that, I know we've talked about the book, but I, I don't feel like it's been introduced properly yet. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the idea started in 2001, actually, and then I kept asking other large environmental uh, NGOs to do it or, you know, and, and, and a couple of universities. And everyone I spoke to anyway said, great idea, but we don't know how to do it. And the idea, by the way, was to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. It seemed like a good idea and a good thing to know. I wanted to know, starting in 2001, where we stood. Where do we stand? Is this like, is it game over? You know, <laughs> people were saying it even then, more so now. Which I love what, on Bill Mayer when he was pushing you to give the number. <laughs> He's like, what's the number? And you're like, why even go there? Right? Like, I love that your view of this is so complete that it's not even about the number at which we're all doomed and gloomed. It's about the possibilities and solutions right in front of us. Yeah. Because what good does that number do, even though it's going to be wrong no matter what you say? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. no one knows. But yeah, I mean, um, so I, I, for what, 12, 13 years, I mean, I, 12 years, I, 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 well, I asked people for a couple of years and then I just stopped asking because no one took me up on it. And they, they were very nice about it and agreed, but said, you know, why don't you do it? And I said, I don't know how to do it. Uh, that's why I'm asking you, you know, you have the money and the resources and the scientists. And anyway, so in 2013, Bill McKibben wrote a book, excuse me, wrote an article and Rolling Stone called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And um, it, it was aptly named, by the way. It was a terrifying article. And what he had done is take the work of Mark Campanale, who is a carbon tracker in London. And Mark was a financial analyst and then went into the nonprofit side. And he analyzed the balance sheet of every uh, uh, coal, gas, and oil company in the world that he could get his hands on. Some of them are privately held uh, in Russia and in the Mideast and other Kazakhstan, places like that. But he got most of them and, and then came up with the conclusion that uh, the deposits, which were called assets, you know, of coal, gas, and oil, and that was what was in the ground, which uh, were unburnable. That is to say, if we burned them, we would be Venus so why call it an asset on your balance sheet? And he called it unburnable carbon, okay? And so that had a huge uh, ripple effect in the financial community, that's for sure. And it continued to, you know, be the obvious, you know, like if, if, if we have to, if we're double glazing the planet by combusting fossil fuels, then how can we call the, this, the, all the ones we've discovered, assets, you know. Um, so anyway, so Bill, what he did in that article, Bill McKibben, is he burned them. <laughs> he combusted them. And then showed what the consequences would be. And that was global warming's terrifying new math. And, and I had friends come to me then and say, it's uh, game over. And they, they, it's interesting, they said it and they didn't know each other. But they used the same phrase, you know which is kind of, again, a sports metaphor in a way. 
um, which is we've worked hard, we've tried, but we're, we failed. And, um, and they, they were talking about, you know, moving to the Squamish Valley in British Columbia or doing, you know, I mean, like, you know, getting out of the way of, of, of the impact, but uh, for the near future. Um, and that's when I decided that, well, drawdown should be done because oftentimes when you get into that psychological place in your life where you give up, you surrender, it's game over, you don't know, you, you know, you feel like a failure, it's actually uh, a game on. That is, it's actually an opening, not a closure. There is a closure of one way of thinking for sure, but it's an opening. And I felt like that what Bill did was kind of a, a gift in a way because it just bummed people out so much. And um, so that's how Drawdown got started, Project Drawdown. And since nobody would give money because everybody who I talked to, funders and philanthropists, basically said, well, show us something when you've got something, you know, and we'll look at it. But we had nothing to show, of course. And there was no we. <laughs> and um, so uh, a small group of people got together and decided to figure out how to do that on, on the cheap. Uh, and so I put in the first $150,000 and took it out of my retirement account. And, and also a gift that somebody had given me uh, to write a book. And so I gave that gift to Drawdown. I have to figure you, maybe your th- thought process was if, if this doesn't work, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't work, that retirement doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> I mean, is that? Well, mine would, but not some other people's. <laughs> well, like if, if the global warming issue isn't reversed, right? <laughs> no, then nobody, it's not, there is no retirement for anybody, right? Well, do you know, actually, you, you mentioned that people, when the new IPCC uh, report came out, you know, uh, two months ago, you could see it on Twitter and other social media. People said, I'm no longer going to put money in my retirement account. That's amazing, but not surprising. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so what we did is we needed, you know, 60 plus 60, 70 scholars, scientists, and we had no money to afford such a thing. And um, so we put the call out all around the world to really, you know, great universities and posted on bulletin boards that we wanted drawdown research fellows and explained what it is that we were doing, map measuring and modeling, the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And we were overwhelmed with applications. Um, Aga Khan Award winners, Fulbright scholars, Rhodes scholars, White House fellows, etc. And we chose 66, I think, and we had five senior fellows. And um, and there we went. And we started to, we paid them $1,000, which is just like, you know, ridiculous. I mean, they had to write basically a master's thesis on each solution and then actually employ the model that we had created. It's called the vector analysis model. There's different names for it, but it's a systemic model, not a siloed model. And then learn how to model these things. And we all worked together uh, for uh, two and a half, almost three years. And to create the, the data and, that went into Project Rada. Then what I wanted to do what, uh, is obviously publish it, create a book. So we took the writings and then Catherine Wilkinson and I wrote the book. 
And um, because we wanted to read the master's theses are not that readable, you know, they have a different function, you know. So we wanted to make something that was accessible, that was had a narrative arc, that was stories that, you know, you know, that in, that people want to turn the page. And the other thing is then I worked with um, a friend of mine, Janet Mumford, and then we designed the book, you know, the font, the letting, the kerning. I chose every photograph. I wanted something that you would open up and would be enticed by, you know, which is how interesting. Didn't know. How knew that? Look at that. What does that do? How does that work? I, you know, rather than something that was like, you know, a stranded polar bear in a nice flow, you know, or, you know, pictures of, you know, smokestacks, you know, emitting carbon into the air, you know. And so there's no threat or fear or doom or gloom in that book. And there's no blaming. There's no demonization. Um, there's no fault finding. Um, it's all about possibility. Um, and so the book was published in you know, April 2017. But there's another story, too, because the publisher is, quote, quote, my publisher. That is, they published my books before. And my editor of 25-plus years, maybe 30, I'm not sure. but And we've had, he and I together, four New York Times bestsellers. So, you know, it's not like I'm a schmuck, you know. And yet, when when I told him about this book, Drawdown, he he said the house didn't want to publish it. Did he tell you why? Yeah, he had a good reason. Climate books don't sell. And um, it sounds like Hollywood. <laughs> well, it's true though, you know. Yeah. Because nobody wants to read about the end of the world at night, and so, um, and furthermore, it was on 100% post-consumer waste, which is expensive paper. Two, it was in color, which means you had to print 10 to 15,000 at a time. Three, they don't sell, which means the house thought they'd be remaindered and they would end up with this, you know, warehouse, you know, with boxes of books, you know, that couldn't be sold. Um, and four, it couldn't be hardbound and hardbound books get reviewed and softbound don't because um, that would be much too expensive. It just went on and on. And, um, and they wrestled with that while we created the book. And uh, it really wasn't, until about I think I don't know how many months before we were going to be finished, and they had their final meeting with production and promotion and publicity and academics and editorial and I forget all the different departments that you know are consensual about a book whether they should do it or not. And it was the publisher, and she is she's Catherine's amazing, and she just listened uh, to it all, and then asked her staff, uh, well, she said, could I ask a question? May I ask a question? She's a very polite, very polite, sweet woman. And they said, of course, she's the CEO. <laughs> and she said, if we don't publish this book, why are we here at all? And, and that's really, that question is why it got published. And because um, nobody can answer that question in any other way except, okay. You know, that's why we're here. And and, and it, it was an, on the New York Times bestseller list on its first week, you know. But I think it, it was because people really want to know what to do. And they really want to work on solutions. And the thing we have to continue to work on here and elsewhere is to show how individuals benefit from the solutions. Communities benefit, neighborhoods benefit, families benefit, farmers benefit. 
In other words, it's it's not like you have to do this because I feel guilty or I I'm altruistic or I feel like if I don't do it, something bad's going to happen. Or even though it doesn't seem like much, I'll do it anyway. I mean, those are not really good reasons. You know, I mean, they're good reasons, but they're not sufficient unto the day in terms of mobilizing people. And so we have to understand that these solutions to reversing global warming actually benefit us in every single way in terms of really creating a transformative world, a better world than we have right now, not a worse world. And that goes back to your point about for us or to us. I mean, is it happening for us or to us? Because if we think it's that we're victims and objects, if it's happening to us, then we act it out that way, you know, which is, it makes us depressed. We don't want to hear about it. It creates despair. It creates denial. It creates basically disempowerment um, and disengagement. But also, we feel, like I said, a victim, you know, like I didn't cause this. I just got born 20 years ago or 25 years ago. I had no say in this at all. And that's further further disempowering. Um, But if you look at it as for you, then you're looking at it as a system. And any every system has feedback. Um, Our bodies are a system. They give us feedback every day. You know, if we have a fever, this or that, symptoms, aches, pains, so this is all feedback. And anytime we ignore feedback, we get into trouble. If you really ignore it, you'll die. And so any system that ignores feedback perishes. This is just the rule. This is basic cybernetics 101, systems thinking 101. This is not novel. So the earth is giving feedback. And so therefore, it's a blessing. It's not a curse. It's a gift, you know. Um, and the feedback is that we're changing the weather, you know, changing the climate because we're changing circulation pattern, patterns and models because it's getting warmer. So where do you go? You go right to the warming. So how do you stop it from warming any further and how do you reduce the warming? Um, because that gets us, gets us back to the relative climatic stability of the Holocene period, the last 12,000 years, which is the period in which civilization arose. What's your experience been with the book since it was published in April of 2017? And, and, and how does it compare to what your aspirations or your hopes for the book were? Well, we had hopes and we had, you know, not ignorance, but I mean, we, we were clueless as to really what would happen. You never know with a book. You really, truly don't. I, I know that from my own experience, but I, publishers know it well as well you know they they never can predict exactly how a book's going to land and how people are going to respond the thing that uh i'm pretty sure what happened was it it was a book that people wanted to give to other people in other words the whole book was like a message you know but a complex one, but an interesting one, hopefully. And so when I would do book signings, people come up with five, 10, somebody came with 20 books from one reading, you know, or talk and so forth. You know, normally people buy one or maybe they buy one for their son or daughter or something like that, or friend, sometimes two, but that's pretty unusual. On this one, I noticed people buying stacks of them. So that means that they were giving away one woman about 500 to give to friends, you know, and so forth. So, so I think it, 
what it indicates is that people want to do something and they want to engage people because this was a book that they found hopeful. Now, people have asked me, so thank you for writing a hopeful book. And what I've said is that was not our purpose at all. We were not interested in hope in writing this book. And which sounds sort of counterintuitive, you know what I mean? But the Drawdown is a reality project. It is science-based. Every single solution in terms of the measurement of the impact um, is based on peer-reviewed science, which we cite in some cases many, many, many papers. Um, and there's only two things you can do about the atmosphere. You can either stop putting greenhouse gases up there, warming gases, or you can bring them back home through photosynthesis, you know, farming, forests, and different uh, agricultural uh, and land use practices. So there's only two things you can do. And each one of them, um, that is to say the solutions, had to have abundant peer-reviewed science. And we always chose the median number if there was a range. And each solution had to have robust economic data, so which we chose from internationally respected institutions like the IEA and the World Bank and the IPCC and Bloomberg Energy and FAO, etc., so um, from our point of view, none of the data uh, is ours. It's, I don't know, 5 million data points in the models, but it's not our data. What we did is reflect back to the world what it knows and what it is doing. Very different than us being this small NGO in, in Sausalito saying, we know and we figured it out and check it out and this is what you ought to do. It's not what we did and it's not what we're saying. We're saying you know, look at yourself, that is we, this is a smaller we, this coalition became 228 people eventually, but a smaller we talking to the greater we, which is humanity saying, look, this is what we know and this is what we're doing. Let's, let's do it better. Let's accelerate. You know, let's, let's, let's take it on. You know, it's worthwhile. It's working. It, it pencils out. You know, the benefits are extraordinary. Um, and so what happened when the book came out is that people bought lots of them, and we just went into our ninth printing, and the printings are you know, 15,000 copies each, but <clears throat> it's in 12 languages, or soon will be by this spring, um, and it's being taught, and it's being taught from fourth grade all the way to graduate school at MIT, and, and other graduate schools and so forth. And I don't think a book that I know of or have heard of has ever come out that is taught in that breadth of educational levels. Um, and it's, there's people using it for children's theater. There's a, 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 up in the air in Boulder, University of Colorado, children dress up and act out solutions. And in theater, it's so cute. There's, you know, the boys and girls dress up to peas and carrots and talk about a plant-rich diet, you know, and things like that. And so, it's being used as an educational tool. It's going to be adopted by historical, um, uh, let's go to HBSC, historical black and something colleges. I, I forgot the S, what the S means. But um, it's being adopted by universities all over the world. It's being adopted by cities. There's drawdown cities. There's drawdown provinces. Drawdown Nova Scotia. Drawdown Nova Scotia. Um, drawdown, Mayor, uh, Mike Kelly, the mayor of Kansas, just wrote to me three days ago, having a big meeting about making Drawdown 
uh, you know, Kansas City, a Drawdown City. Um, there's um, Drawdown New Zealand, Drawdown Australia. There's Drawdown Switzerland. There's you know, there's a Drawdown Hub in Berlin, which is Drawdown Europe. Um, there's a Drawdown London. It goes on and on. And so, what we are trying to do is create the conditions for self-organization. And one, and, and basically, if you look at your first question, which is, what is life? You know, life is a self-organizing system. Life creates the conditions that are conducive to life, but it organizes itself. Nobody's in charge. And if you look at the atmosphere and climate, it's a self-organizing system. If you look at all of the, whether it's oceans or land or everything that goes on within the oceans or on the land, these are self-organizing systems. If you look at the human body, it's a self-organizing system. You are not in charge. You're in charge of what you drink, eat, smoke, um, breathe, uh, and hear and read for sure. And that influences the body. But that is not how it organizes itself. It's organized according to principles that you have nothing to do with. Uh, in your mind, that is. You do if you think you're your body, which you aren't, but that's another subject. So what I'm saying is everything is a self-organizing system, and therefore what we want to do as a book and as an organization is create the conditions for self-organization around reversing global warming which is very different than having sort of a charismatic male ahead of our organization, you know, that cares about climate and global warming, telling people, uh, you know, what they should do and what they should, and, and, and educating them and saying, you know, this is what we need and this is what you should do. It's not that that's incorrect in what they're promulgating. It's just that it's slow. That's a very slow way to organize the world. The best way to organize the world is not to be the organizer is to be the catalyst, is to be something that precipitates people organizing that themselves. And that's where we want to go. And that's what we're trying to do at Drawdown. I think that's a really amazing perspective and not one I've ever heard by anyone who's written a book that that was one of the aims of writing a book, you know, that it would, that it would catalyze that or take advantage of the self-organization that happens in, in a certain way. With all you've learned, whether you know through writing this book or in all of your research and your experience, what's your sense of what what life on this planet will look like fifty years from now? I don't know. It depends what we do, because we are in the Anthropocene, which is that what we do uh, here as this species, as Homo sapiens, um, has a profound effect on the earth, um, which wasn't always true. Um, so it's unknowable. What we do know, however, is that climate change is a linear system. You know, climate is a linear system. It's not, um, uh, did I say linear? Non-linear. Um, it's not a linear system. So it's not like in your house, you have a thermostat and it's 70 degrees, and then you turn it up, to 72 and 72, you turn to 74, it's 74. You know, turn to 68, it's 68. That's a linear um, <clears throat> uh, relationship. Um, climate is very different. You know, you 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 go up in like say from one degree to one and a half degrees centigrade. You know, a 50 percent increase that could cause it and will cause a geometric change. 
in terms of global circulation models, which then affects rain, drought, heat, cold, um, uh, uh, oceans, acidification, etc. So we don't know what's going to happen going forward. There are thresholds where once you cross a threshold, then you're in a new regime. This is straight sort of ecological uh, terminology. And um, you know it if you pull the trigger on a gun, you can pull, squeeze, 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 and all of a sudden what something happens is a regime change. You fire the bullet. And um, there's many examples of that where if you just take um, salt and you just have a little tiny, tiny, tiny spout putting salt and you'll make a mountain of salt and then you put one more grain of salt on it and the whole thing collapses. So <laughs> this, it's just the way it works. And so our climate is no different. It's just that we don't know when or what's going to happen. And um, so, so we can't expect whatever we're seeing now to increase. And what that means is that the hydrological cycle is going to get more extreme and bigger rainfalls, bigger floods, bigger droughts, no question. Winds will increase in speed, uh, whether they're just ambient levels of wind or um, hurricanes, cyclones, um, depending on the hemisphere. Um, we know that um, there will be heat events that are uh, life-threatening, which there already are, uh, and, um, but there'll be more of them. Um, we're going to get unusual Arctic cold coming down um, to regions where it doesn't normally go and perhaps lingering longer. And that has to do with a jet stream going down further south in the Northern Hemisphere than it does normally. And then it, it, you know, it moves like a snake, and in between the snake, it pulls the, the cold Arctic air down to cities, towns, regions, Europe, whatever, that is unaccustomed to that level of cold in the winter. The same applies to the south, of course, on the opposite in terms of directionality. So we know the weather is going to become more extreme, no question about it. And um, it will do so for at least 50 years. Because even if we achieve drawdown in 2050 or 2045, which is what we, in a sense, model, uh, it would take at least two decades before there's any impact on climate. So that's what we face. So this, these issues of adaptation and resilience are very, very real. Um, how do we, you know, change our cities so that they don't drown? You know, how do we build our houses so they don't get flooded and washed away? Um, how do we grow our crops and where do we grow them and which way and which crops so that we're fed? Um, how do we begin to interact with the oceans so that um, ocean acidification does not um, come closer to killing the you know phytoplankton and the, the life of the ocean itself um, so these are all things we face um, but the reason going back to what I say is we weren't interested in a hopeful book is because hope 
is really the pretty mask of fear. In other words, you don't have hope unless you have fear. And uh, I guess it's some of my Buddhist training, but but I, I feel like what we need to, to be now is fearless, not hopeful, because hopeful means there's a fear behind it. And we need to be fearless about what we do, who we are, what our lives are about, um, and not act out of fear, which is what we're doing, for example, politically right now in the United States. It's all fear-based, and we see the result. And um, so we can't act out of fear. We have to act out of profound and deep understanding of the implications of warming, but not out of fear, just out of respect. And then we then have to do what we need to do. And uh, there's a lot to do for everybody. At this point, there's a couple questions come up for me. One of them is about people not really experiencing themselves as an integral part of the whole. Or in other words, there's, in my view, an ignorance there where people don't, I mean, if people got the, the part they are of a whole and that it cannot be otherwise, that if they, if they really saw that, I think behavior would change without legislation, without even willpower Right. Like I tend to think we'll probably look back and wonder like, what in the hell were we thinking, you know, with whatever plastic water bottles or other things that end up in the landfill or production practices or a whole bunch of different things. But what's your sense of, and, and I realize that's just my view. I could be wrong, <laughs> but I know that when people's understanding changes, their behavior will often change as a result. And it doesn't take per- persuading or convincing per se. It's just an expansion of their awareness of their understanding. What, um, and I heard you just mention your Buddhist training and, and I know, you know, like, um, you know, the concept of interbeing, you know, this kind of, kind of thing that, that if people get, I think their behavior changes. So all this is leading to the question of what's your experience with what's effective in helping people like get or helping people experience their integral, um, oneness with, with this universe they're a part of. Well, I'm not a teacher and I don't. Um, pretend to be um, I, I, I have teachers uh, you know Jack Cornfield and uh, Muji and others who constantly teach me about my dualistic mind <laughs> and teach non-dualism of course which is really kind of what you're talking about in a sense of that uh, uh, separability becoming a sense of inseparability. I mean, everything we watch, see, hear reinforces uh, this idea that we're individuals. And uh, social media has uh, put that on steroids. Um, and so uh, I don't know what are those turning points for people uh, where they understand and act out of a sense of connectedness and inseparability. I do know that um, it involves a way of communication that's different than the one we use because so much of our communication is about being right. And anytime you're right, you make somebody wrong, not necessarily intentionally, but you do anyway. 
uh, every religion makes other religions wrong, not necessarily religious leaders, but, you know, basically, you no, know, this is the way, this is the true God, blah, 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 blah. And um, ecumenical religious people don't generally do that, but, but that's, the, that's what we're seeing all over the world, you know? I mean, you know, um, so um, I, I, you know, it's because it's funny because this may seem like a digression, but I don't think so. Somebody asked me once, said they listened to a talk and it was a Q&A and then I think it was being videoed and then the camera went off because it, it and then somebody said, oh, I still have a question. And there was more questions. So we kept going. And one of the questions was somebody who was very sort of confrontive and, and sort of jabbing his finger at me and saying, yeah, 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 but, you know, you're just talking to the choir here. Uh, what do you say to the NASCAR people? Huh? You know, it's like, huh? What do you say to them? Huh? You know, in other words, like, and... I said, what would I say to NASCAR people? I said, I'd probably ask them a question. And he said, what would you ask them? I said, I'd ask them who they favored, Chase Elliott or Kyle Busch for the championship. (laughs) (laughs) I said, said, because I want to know who I'm talking to, first of all. And, And I don't know those people, you know, so I want to find out who I'm talking to, who I'm with, you know. And second, I said, and this is very important, it's not my business to change somebody else's mind. My business is to change my mind. That's what I'm here to do. It's hard enough to change my own mind. It's, it's ridiculous to try to change somebody else's mind. And um, it doesn't work. And again, it goes back, I think, to our earlier discussion about climate communication, You know, which is, it, it forcefulness in communication does not it creates resistance it doesn't create you know um receptive receptivity it creates resistance and that's just what it's like to be a human being when somebody forces their opinion ideas thoughts knowledge facts their right stuff on us we, we pull back we feel it we feel it in our body you know and so we have to communicate differently and that difference has to be about listening. I say, look, that the, the way we're going to do this is, is to meet human needs, not to um, satisfy the conference of the parties in the Paris Agreement, which is to limit you know, temperature to 2 degrees centigrade or Celsius or 1.5 C by 2050, I mean, that's all you hear about and that we probably won't do it and this is gonna happen if we don't do it and so forth. And what's happening, Brian, is that we keep talking about these future existential threats, you know, like, yeah, we had Hurricane Florence and Michael and this, and, you, know, you know, these are current existential threats to, you know, Mexico Beach or to North Carolina or something like that. But, but basically the conversation is about the future. And what we know about us, human beings, is that we got here by being really good survivors. Uh, We got here by dealing with current existential threat. And current existential threat is food and warmth and 
and habitat and community, you know, dealing with community or, or it could be war. Um, in other words, we're really good at that. And all our ancestors were, otherwise you and I wouldn't be here. And so the human mind isn't wired for future existential threat. It's not wired for 32 years from now, which is kind of, you know, what the IPCC and the Conference of the Party is asking us to do, to motivate us. It's interesting and it's compelling. Don't get me wrong. And it may be just dead on too, but it doesn't motivate because that's not the way the human mind works. The human mind corresponds and relates to current existential threat. And if you think about even anybody, what is, what's the first thing they think about in the morning? Not 2050. You know, the first of all, they think about, oh, see, you know, shower or what I have to do or what I have to do this morning or are my kids awake or what time is it, you know, I have to get them to school or whatever. You think about immediate things. And as the day goes on, you know, you think about things further on, sometimes not very far. There was a woman at Kiva, beautiful, made a beautiful statement, you know, the chairperson of Kiva.org. And she said, for most of the world, their sense of possibility does not extend outside of the one room that they live within. And so, in order to satisfy, I mean, not satisfy, but in order to reverse global warming, we have to actually reverse our communication, which is we have to look at these solutions in the context of meeting human needs. Those needs are, again, warmth and food and access and education and healthcare and habitat and a renewed and regenerated environment and fishery and water and soil and abundance and productivity. This is what humans need. And so the way to reverse global warming is to address current human needs. And especially for who knows, uncountable billions, but is it three or four, I don't know, billion people whose needs are extraordinary. And when you think about it, we're the only species without full employment. You know, when's the last time you saw an unemployed bee or ant or you know, fox or, you know, a nuthatch or a crow or, you know, all the other species here are fully employed, you know, and we are the one species that has created a system where we tell people that they're not needed, you know, that they are disposable, that they're waste, that, you know, and it's crazy because when you think about it, Never have so many people needed so much as right now. And we are marginalizing people and saying, and they're unemployed, right? And so it's really upside down and backwards. And so the next book that I slash we are going to do is called Regeneration, but the subtitle is How to Create One Billion Jobs. And I don't mean shovel-ready jobs. I mean jobs to give people a sense of purpose and meaning and respect in their life, a living wage for sure, and a sense that they belong here, that they have purpose, that they're valued, that their life has meaning, their children, themselves, their family, their community, respects them for what they do. That's what we need on earth. That's how you reverse global warming. You don't do it by asking people 
to basically get worried about what the temperature might be like in 2050, valid as that may be, by the way, um, it has no impact on the world except on certain, obviously, scientists and climate movement leaders, for sure, you know. But it's not going to do, it's not going to organize the other 99% of the people or uh, and uh, uh, get them um, uh, motivated. It sounds so logical when you describe it that way about, <laughs> you know, the way to reverse global warming is to address current human needs and to go about it. It's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. I want to shift the conversation now. And, um, and I have a few short form questions. You can answer them in whatever length feels appropriate, but I've designed them that I read them briefly and, and you answer. So, okay. Um, are you ready for the lightning round? Sure. Ready. Go. All right. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Oh, okay. This is a lightning one. <laughs> like life is the most mysterious journey possible. I love it. Okay. Uh, number two, what do you wish you were better at? Um, I wish I was better at um, social intelligence. That is... Um, I wish I was not so much a monk, but like being around people more than I do. Hmm. Okay. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a saying or a phrase or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Mostly bacteria learning to be human. You own that shirt, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's already in your closet. No. Okay. Uh, number four. My wife made it. Did she really? Yeah. That's awesome. All right. What book other than your own have you gifted most often? The Invention of Nature about Alexander von Humboldt, the, without doubt, the greatest scientist that ever lived. Why that book? Humboldt started out as a scientist. And then before he did much work, he spent two years with Goethe. And out of that, he wrote in his journal that you cannot understand science without the imagination, which I thought was such an important insight that is even more relevant today than it was then. You travel a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel? to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Less. To take very little. <laughs> like, <laughs> so no matter where I go, it's just on my back and I'm free. Do you do the thing where you only travel carry-on? Well, not only carry-on, but sometimes it's just on my back. Wow, okay. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh, stopped eating anything with simple sugars except fruit in season. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish they understood that what they eat causes health or suffering, that the choice of what they eat causes health or suffering. What advice did your parents give you that has impacted you or stayed with you? 
You never learn anything when your mouth is open. Before we conclude, um, I do have just a few questions about writing mm-hmm. that I want to turn to. Before we go there, though, um, just to make sure we get this in here, if people want to learn more from you or connect with you, what should they do? Uh, well, there's, there's, you know, Slash Bahawkin on Twitter. There is a Facebook page, same. There is um, info at Bahawkin, info at drawdown.org. Um, there's LinkedIn. Um, there's Google, you know, search, of course. I think it's 300,000. I don't know how many different things, you know, YouTube or articles or stuff like that. Um, there's all that stuff. Connecting to me, a lot of people do try to connect, and there's a, a bandwidth, you know. So, because I'm a writer, and so right now I'm going into another writing phase. So, we send out nice apologies, <laughs> but it's 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 just it's too much of a good thing, you know. I can't answer, respond to everything. So, we respond, but we don't respond in the affirmative, in the sense of like. You know, engaging because it's when you're writing a book is it really is like being a monk you know it's yeah. it's a, it's a solo act yeah yeah and of course people can find your books hopefully in their local bookstore online and libraries and, and used libraries. books on amazon too don't forget used books yes who cares about royalties let's care the forests are more important yes and I also will say this here before we go to the writing questions that as a way of saying thank you, a small token of my gratitude, expression of it, I have gone to Kiva.org and made $100 in microloans to an entrepreneur named Nirbanu who lives in India who will use this loan to help expand her scrap selling business and improve nice. the quality of life for herself and, and her family and her community. Oh, so pleased with that. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Brian. It's amazing us, for you or us, you know, I mean, that's not, that's a small amount of money. Okay. Yeah. But it is amazing what a small thing can do to a person at the right time. A small thing can be a word too, you know, I mean, not just one word, but just some words, you know, but an act, a kindness, a, a, you know, like, the whole universe is made up of small things. (laughs) Yes. It's like, that's all it is. And so that is a big thing for Nirvana. And, um, and it's just lovely to identify these leverage or pivot points, you know, where a whole, a whole person's life can, pivot change you know in a way that would not have otherwise happened yeah yeah on on that page it says that she has a household of five members and a monthly income of about 350 us dollars there you go there you go and maybe it'll go to 450 or five or something but that's like a 30 50 percent increase in income you know yeah and it can mean books for her children it can mean school uniforms it can mean who knows you know i mean um so thank you for doing that and thank you for thinking that way to do it yeah no it's my pleasure i've i've been so thrilled by what kiva makes possible so it's a it's a privilege to do it okay so first of all i really want to know if you have any writing rituals 
whether mm. you write a, light a candle, brew a tea, like play some music, wear a robe, anything like that. Is there something you do to kind of get yourself in state and, and sit down and be productive? Yeah, but it might surprise you. Um, what I think every writer, writing is like, talk about deferred gratification. Oh, I mean, that's why they say writers have the lo lowest lifespan and conductors have the highest, you know, because um, conductors get to conduct every day and even in mostly rehearsal, but still it's you play a piece and then the piece is over, you know, or you conduct it. And, and a writer can write for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I mean, years, right? And that's deferred gratification. In other words, it's not done, it's not done, it's not done day after week, after month, after in some cases years, it's not done, you know? And that's actually very stressful, uh, I think. And that's why writers have the, low, the lowest lifespan of any profession. <laughs> Maybe soldiers have a lower one. But, but um, and so the thing to do every day before you write is it can be the night before too, but is to complete something that you put off. It doesn't have, it's not a big thing. It can be, you know, old socks that you want to give away, you know, get rid of out of your drawer. It can be cleaning up a closet. It can be anything that you see around your environment at work or, uh, or at home, especially that's undone you know, a messy kitchen drawer. Who doesn't have a messy kitchen drawer? I'm telling you, you know, with the potpourri of things in it. So um, do something like that, you know, outside, inside, you know, it could be writing to somebody, you know, completing a thank you or, uh, you know, you put off. Um, and so if you go into your writing with a sense of completion, there's a your your mind is more flexible, open, free ranging than if you start if you write in the morning, whenever you start. But if you start with all those little things in the back of your mind that are undone, uncompleted, not not you know, addressed yet, not you know, and we carry those around. And if you just do one of them every day, you know, then what happens is your writing, I think, becomes um, more fluid and and hopefully more creative. I love that. And I, lo I love the way you've described it. And at the same time, I think about that becoming a bit of a, a rabbit hole or a good, ex a really good excuse why I'm not writing. Well, I'm completing things, <laughs> right? I mean, how do you balance that? I said a small that? thing. I said a small yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah. rebuild your garage. <laughs> okay. A small thing. That's a key point. Yeah, yeah. It can be folding T-shirts and laundry, you know, whatever. Just something, just make order and clean up, change, fix, repair, uh, acknowledge, thank, it, it, you know, just do something that, you know, it, that you've put off. If you haven't put it off, and that's okay, but best best things are things you put off and to identify them and see them. That's just a, I think that's just a good way to live. <laughs> it's a good way to live, period, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. So when you're in the middle of a project, like you're about to be right in the thick of it, how do you, th so it's a kind of a two-part question. One is, how do you think about time, like as a writer, knowing you have a project? And then the kind of the second part is, how do you structure any given day when you're in the middle of a project? Well, um, 
the thing I've noticed is that this is for me, it may be different for other people. It's certainly different for journalists who travel, you know, and write on the go. But for me, uh, you, you have to show up every day of the week, except for maybe one or two or if you, you know, whatever, but um, where you write. And for me, it has to be the same place. Uh, it can't be in this room or that room or that somebody else's vacation thing or, you know, take your laptop to an Airbnb or something. It doesn't work for me. And the reason um, I think that's true is because I think that just like if you meditate in a room or other people meditate in a room, but it, there's actually an energy in that room which is palpable. You can you can feel it. And I think when you actually write in the same place day after day after day after day after day, there's an energy there which you can draw upon. Now, what you call that energy, uh, I mean, it's unnameable. But for me, the experience is like there are presences and they build up. In other words, there's more and more of them. And I don't want to anthropomorphize it, but it sounds like it. Um, and these presences are are ignorant of what you're writing about. That is to say, what you're writing about. In other words, they, but they're smart. And there's a difference. And um, and so when you're writing, it's almost like you're you have this present this presence you're writing to, you know, which is so you read through those eyes, you're reading the your writing as you go through those eyes. Now some people write, you know, five hundred thousand, two thousand words and then just all the way through and then read it later or after they've written it. I don't do that. I read, I write and read, write and read, write and read, write and read. Oh, as, I'm, as I'm writing, I read and then I write and then I read and then I write and I read. Um, and so um, to me, that is extremely important. And I go like, you know, Blessed Unrest, there was 57 whole versions but I would say some paragraphs or some parts probably went through a hundred versions, you know, and a version could be a single word rewrite. It can be scrap a whole paragraph. It can be um, the Hemingway killing your darlings, which is, you know, those cute little things at the end of a paragraph that make you look smart and actually don't make you look smart, make you look egoistic. So, you know, um, uh, that process happens better in that place. I have written like a couple of paragraphs just and stopped and then read it and realized that I had never thought what I was reading. In other words, I had no, well, I know, I, I, I never thought those words before. And it's kind of an interesting mind state, you know, where some deeper level of that mind and the presence that's in the room is interacting with the keyboard and the screen and the, the letters and the words and the paragraphs and the sentences. Now that, that sounds a lot like channeling. It does sound like it. And maybe it is. I have no idea what channeling is or isn't. I, I just can describe that experience, you know, um, and, uh, and it is, it is in a sense of that you respect it as not 
you, you, when you finish, you know, you don't have this sense of over inflated sense of I, you know, you, you mm-hmm. don't after you write a whole book. It's like, I don't anyway. I don't really have that sense. How do you spend your time that day? Do you, are you a morning writer? Are you a night owl? Do you like to, so I heard you say you like to write in the same spot, but then do you crave like social interaction and go do something or how does exercise fit in? Like all this nutrition meals, like just how does a day unfold generally? Yeah, I, I'm a little compulsive on that level. I like to, which I, I'm trying to break this habit. Okay. This habit is like, I like to clean up my inbox, you know, in the morning, like, okay, that's all done. You know, that's not one of the completion things I mentioned earlier, by the way. That's just, I mean, it comes in every day. I'm not sure that's the wisest thing to do, but I do anyway. So then from that point, I'll turn the, you know, turn mail off and then I'll write. Uh, I prefer the morning when I'm alone. Uh, then I'll often do it at night as well. So I'll do morning and night. And then in between is I'll do whatever whatever else I have to do, work or usually work, you know, because I'm usually involved with some other uh, organization, you know. Yeah. And how many hours at a stretch do you like to write? Mm, it's kind of like flow. Um, and uh, when you're in if you're in flow, you don't think about the, the it's either thirst or hunger that stops you. Um, so when you're not in flow, you know, then what I do is, is read. You have to read anyway, but I'll read and just, and make notes and so forth. All writing is about reading, you know, um, but like all music is about hearing music. And, uh, and so, um, but if it's not happening, you know, uh, with, on the screen, on, 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 the, on the page, then all I'll do is just go, go read somewhere, you know. I remember yeah. once on my houseboat and I was outside and uh, on the bay and, and there was a seagull that always came and to that, my houseboat, I kind of, oh, that was its territory, you know, and feed it sometimes. Well, a lot actually, but the seagull was there and calling at me. And I was out on the deck and I was reading, and I, I was like, oh, "My God, I'm working. This is, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, how lucky! <laughs> how lucky is that? You know." And when and when you say reading, do you mean reading something other than your own writing? You go read something different. I read about between depends on the book. 100 to 500 pages for every page I write. Wow. And that's been consistent through through decades? Yeah. I mean, it, it gets more now. It gets, there's more now. It's not like I cited or put in the bibliography unless I don't try to, I'm not trying to, if I use something from that writing, I cite it. Absolutely. You know, no question about it. But it's partly reading good writing. Yeah. Words. It's like being in tune, you know, if you're a musician. But partly it's it's just the you're in a mind flow of some, somebody else's mind flow and in the way they make connections and you know 
patterns of logic or reasoning and so forth. And those can unearth the same within you around a different subject or around a similar subject, you know, that you are writing about. And um, so you'll make connections by, it happens, if you should see my books, how underlined and dog-eared they are, all because they, there was an insight, you know, the fortunate part about it is most of the time you go back there, you look at it and go, what was that insight? But, <laughs> but still, it's, it's, sometimes you're going to remember. Yeah, I remember when I read Stephen King's memoir on writing, and he talked about if you want to be a professional writer, you should read like four to, read and or write, he said, between you know at least four to six hours a day. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting how he said read and or write like they were totally interchangeable. Yeah. You know, that's but, true. but that's, that's interesting. So the first part of this question is how do you know that this topic or this question or whatever is worth the investment of your life energy and the opportunity cost it incurs? How do you finally know that you've got the thing? I, it's a good question. I, for me, a book starts years and years and years in advance. You know, it's not, there's, it's not impulsive. I, I can probably think of a book to write every month, actually. But, and, and I just watch, and wh- which ones stay? You know, which ones not just linger, but get stronger in my mind? And I also then look out at the world, the news, the, the, the books that are being published, you know, thought pieces, um, and see how it continues to relate or fade away. In other words, it can fade away um, depending on what it is. So, but generally, what I choose to write about isn't being written about. In other words, I choose an area where it's kind of wide open. Um, and, and then to see if it, um, continues to marinate, uh, and get more delicious or, you know, lose its flavor. Mm. And then once you've got that and it, it's gotten stronger, it's gotten more delicious and you've made the determination that you will write that, will you walk me through what's your process like, you know, do you then bounce it off your your publisher and you know get a commitment do you start with a book proposal do you write a, some kind of a creative brief like how do you do that all the way from the concept to the uh, the commitment through to the time the book is is published what i do is i i don't write book proposals i i've had the same editor for five books now i write uh, a letter dear rick and I describe the book, and sometimes I'll break it down to chapters. I have a book that I sold called Carbon, The Business of Life. It has, I wouldn't call them chapters, 97 pieces in it. Um, uh, I'm just doing that with regeneration. Um, so I'll have a structure, you know, um, and then... I'll put that away because actually I'll just go where I want to go. And then it's uncanny how often the book adheres precisely to that original 
outline structure, you know, that um, when I, when I write it down, I was just like, Oh, they want this. So here it is. And I've got to sell the book, you know, and get, you know, and, but when I look back, I go, my gosh, you know, it, and almost perfect conformity to what was written down, even though to me it's a struggle and it's very painful to summarize something in a two page letter. You know, it just feels like, or sometimes three pages, but it feels so mm, simplistic and almost like you're selling, you know, like a sales job. And and yet, when I look back on them, they actually were quite uh, accurate. So yeah, that's what I do. So um, and actually, I'm doing it right now for a, a book called Drawdown 2.0, which is you know the succeeding version Drawdown the book right now, and it has quite a few changes and variations. And that's for 2020, uh, for Earth Day, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and Tia Nelson, Gaylord Nelson's daughter, and. Dennis Hayes, the founder, co-founder of Earth Day, uh, Gaylord and Dennis are the co-founders. Uh, will, but Gaylord's not alive, so Tia, his daughter, is going to write it. But the right prefaces to the book that will, in a sense, celebrate the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, but uh, but also still be it's about drawdown, reversing global warming. But it'll be all new if you, not the solutions, but the impact will be different that is the 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 uh, and so there are new solutions some have dropped off the list um there's new coming attractions there's new images the copies changed uh, and there's sections there are a whole bunch of sections that really relate to what people have wanted you know not so much thinking from the book but what period that we'll put in the book in terms of how they correlate to the sustainable development goals and to agency um, in many other areas, yeah. As you do that, as you create, whether it's a new version or an entire new book, how do you approach the organization of the material, like between the research, the photographs, the the drafts, and you know the concepts that you sketch out? Like, how do you keep yourself organized that way? How much of it's digital? How much of it's paper? Yeah, I'm I'm a primitive um, that way, digital primitive. Uh, there are some interesting software programs for organization. I found them confusing. So I keep them in folders and files. E- each uh, chapter has um, versions, you know. Um, they can go to version 14, 15, 16. Um, the chapters are roughly, they're in order in my folder because they're numbered to keep them in order because I want to sequence and write. So when I read something, I want to be able to see what, you know, if it sequences. Um, and they're Word docs. Um, and I always send them to a Gmail thing as a backup for, even though I have iCloud and I have backup in-house, I always create another backup uh, on Gmail. Um, and on the source side, um, which is, um, I have digital sources and they are in mailboxes and then I have, um, magazines and books, um, and sometimes, um, reproduced articles from science journals or things like that that aren't online, uh, that are older. 
and those are kept um, on stacks all over my office. I actually have a visual thinker. I when I give a speech, I'm actually thinking in pictures, and it's coming out as words. I don't think in words, and so um, when the so my office has all these stacks, and and then in those stacks are books that relate to that chapter or section. And uh, and then within those books are are uh, markers and dog ears and underlines and post-its, um, and so I don't try to organize my sources any other way. And then when the book is done, I put them all together like a collection of books, um, except the ones I got from the library, which of course are returned. Um, usually, if it's a book I want, I buy used books from Amazon. Um, like I'll see an article or a piece, and it cites a book, you know, that that just didn't come out yesterday. You know, that's been around even a few months, um, but or a year or longer. And then I'll go to Amazon, and then go to a used bookseller and buy it because I don't need it right away in the first place. And second mm-hmm. of all. I don't want to, I love books and I believe in them passionately, but it doesn't mean I want books sitting around not being used, you know? Yeah. How do you think your process of conceiving and creating a book has changed over the years or what are the most valuable things you've learned about the creative process and about writing over the years? Well, one of the things I've learned is that, you know, um, a lot of writing, uh, you know, when you first start a book, it's kind of like the first waffle, you know, scrape it off and give it to the dog. You know, there's, there's kind of a, it, it's kind of built, you know, a lot of stuff is built up in your mind because you've been thinking about it and not writing and you have to be charitable to yourself, which is a lot of that is, it comes out as kind of garbage, you know, and uh, overreaching and not very understandable and so you write it do it anyway and then you later you realize it's actually the you know your writing started in the third or fourth or fifth paragraph and you can <laughs> get rid of that editors are good for that too <laughs> yeah but you have to edit first otherwise you'll you'll reject the whole thing <laughs> yeah good point good point what's important for aspiring writers to know to read to read, to read, to read, to read. In other words, and then the other thing is to, to, if it's not original, why are you writing it? You know, I mean, don't be a writer. And, and, and don't, do, don't, don't be a digital writer. And a, a digital writer uses, you know, three by five cards and then puts them in order and then writes, you know, it's, you know, like, I mean, books read that way and it's just like a relationship or anything if there isn't serendipity and wildness in the process it's going to read like a three by five card in a box in order you know and so many 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 business books and how-to books and you know take care books and health books and this books and that they read just like that and they're just so dispassionate and and boring yeah, like no soul. No, no soul at all. And 
So part of soul comes out when you're at sixes and sevens, when you don't have a car. There is no three by five car. And, but you're reading and going, ah, you know, and you go deeper, you know. I mean, if you're not finding out about yourself in a deeper sense when you're writing, you're not writing. You're just not. You're, 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 I don't know what you're doing. You know, you're certainly putting words on paper and they may even be perfectly organized and spelled, but <clears throat> you're not actually going to that place where somebody feels that you've shown up. Hmm. And showing up does not mean using the word I. And hmm. uh, that does not, that in fact, that's almost a way not to show up. If you don't use that word, the first person singular, and then when it shows up, it has tremendous impact. But I remember somebody giving me um, a book they wanted me to you know, read and give them advice on. And I read the first page and I stopped and I sent it back and I underlined every, there was 35 eyes. It was just ridiculous. I mean, if you use 35 eyes in a whole book, I mean, you're in trouble. And um, everybody knows who's writing the damn book. So you don't need to keep telling them, you know, who's writing the book. Yeah. Or, you know, if you, I feel, I thought, you know, it's like, screw that. Just talk about the experience or the feeling, you know. There was, you know, at that moment, you know, there, it's, you know, so again, it's really about, and in, 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 when you read good literature, this, this, it'll imbue you with that quality. But if you write because you're, you practice social media all your life and it's not going to, it probably won't work. What do you think is the most, um, I say most, it's a, of course a leap to a superlative, but what's something that you've learned that relates to the power of language? Well, first that it has power and, and that it, I, I, I don't think we fully understand it. And that's why, um, that's why you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And basically part of what you're doing when you rewrite is to, you know, edit means really to remove. And you're, you're just removing everything that's extraneous, excessive, you know, or as I mentioned earlier, narcissistic or, you know, egoistic or show off or using a 25 cent word when you can use a five cent word, you know, um, 25 cent words are, you know, are really, really valuable. And they're only valuable when no, no other word will do. And that's the only time you use them. And um, so that's part of editing is to make it simpler, cleaner, clearer. You know, when you listen to the Dalai Lama or, you know, Bishop Desmond Tutu or Nelson Mandela, um, the Dalai Lama, you know, I mean, I've said that already, but I mean, when you listen to people like that, they, it's, a fifth, it's a fifth grade vocabulary. So you're saying I should quit using propitious at least once on every page. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, 
So why are they so? Why does their words have so much impact? Just because yeah. who they are. So yeah. when you're editing, you're 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 allowing actually in a perverse way, not perverse, but in, in a illogical way, you're allowing yourself to come through. Yeah. But when it's when it's all covered up with you, you know, I and this and then what I feel and what I really, blah, 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 blah. and you know, clever adverbs, you know, and again, adverbs. Be careful, you know. Um, or I should say, use them carefully. <laughs> uh, but adverbs are, you know, you do, I mean, the very hunts, the, you know, the witch hunts, you know, you do the so hunts, you know, I mean, go through and limit all that stuff, you know, which is conversational language. But you don't want conversational language in a book unless you're exactly a conversation. So again, you know, you just, you know, sometimes the less makes sentences words paragraphs stronger you know it's it's not meant to be like hemingway but he certainly pointed that out yeah you know and um so yeah i mean it's again like look at some of the great songs you know just so simple you know talking about symphonies i'm talking about just songs you know just so simple yeah the beatles the beatles yeah yeah my second to last question or my penultimate <laughs> my 25 <laughs> cent word question there okay so what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them the quality of a great sentence is it doesn't have a stop sign at the end of it <laughs> what do you mean by that what does that mean i remember a friend of mine is a ghostwriter, and he calls me all the time. Hey, you know, he texts, "Hey, Paul, you know, y'all read, you know, such and such book, and or you know, or start to read or whatever." You know, I say, uh, "Yeah," and I'll say, "You know, what did you think, Mike?" He said, "Well, it, I tried to get into it, but it just had a stop sign at the end of every sentence." <laughs> <laughs> and somebody's asked me once what makes a good book and i said that you want to turn the page you know yeah don't get fancy that's it okay. if you don't want to turn the page it's not a good book yeah now different people will do that in responding to different types of books of course you know of course i mean that's your know, poetry and you know, and um, James Joyce, how about that one, you know? So it, it depends on taste, you know? I mean, every book is not for everybody. But if your reader doesn't want to turn the page, then it's not a good sentence. Yeah. And they're not going to turn the page unless the sentences want to make you want to read the next sentence. And so, you know, can you get away with one paragraph sentences? Yeah, if you're Jane, if you're Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> but he's been gone a long time. So, exactly. Yeah. All and right. So again, it's just about honoring the reader, you know, which is, you know, if you have, you know, four adverbial clauses, you know, and sentence, you know, you're 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 straining the reader. You have to be very, 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 very good to bring that off, you know. Yeah. It's most of us aren't, you know, so keep it simple, stupid. 
Well, speaking of that, how aware are you of the reader in the process of writing? Well, that's what I meant when I said about presences. Those, that's the reader. Mm. Yeah, so because you know, publisher will ask you, you know, who's your reader, and I'll say I haven't got a clue. So I, you know, I mean, really, I mean, there's books you can write where you know the reader. You know, it's for it's about type two diabetes and diet. You know, well, you yeah. know who your reader is, okay, for sure. But the books I write, I I don't know. You know. Yeah, it's a little bit like the sending it in the the Voyager, right? <laughs> you kind of put it in and send it out. Yeah, send it out. You know, who knows. And so I feel that about books. And that means that you try to write to, well, like Drawdown, fourth grade to graduate school. I mean, if I had said that, you know, to my publisher, oh, I'm writing a book that's going to be taught for fourth grade to graduate school. I mean, they would have thrown, they just would have thrown it away, that proposal, because that's like, that's ridiculous, you know. And that wasn't the explicit intention, but the explicit intention was to write something that was interesting and accessible to the broadest audience, you know, in this case. Yeah. All right. So my final question is that the ultimate question, that's right. (laughs) Um, is really just about if there's anything else, uh, related to writing that feels like, you know, that's something that you want to share before we, before we conclude. Yeah. Let's take it off your bucket list. If you have one, because um, it's a disservice um, <laughs> to <laughs> buckets, you and lists. I mean, I feel like, you know, when I started, 30,000 books were published every year, and now it's 170,000 in the United States, and most of it is direct. And, um, it, and I, I don't think... I, I, a lot of people want to have be published, you know, like that somehow that's like, I don't know, some signifier. And, and I, we're producing an awful lot of bad books or we're producing clones, you know. And I had a teacher once who said, read the books that save you from reading all the derivative books, hmm. you know, write, go to source, you know, and uh, instead of reading books where people read a whole bunch of books and then put together chapters and then citations and, you know, and it's like, okay, thanks. But, and so, so many of those books are right now. And so just like really dig deep and say, why do you want to write a book? Is it of service? To whom? And do you know it'll serve? And is there a better book out there by a better writer or more authoritative or more respected author already? You know, how can you, are you really making a difference? You know, you know, because I can tell you of those 170,000 books, you know, 160,000 of them just come and go. Just like come and go. You know, so that's really low odds, you know. I mean, and um, very, very few books actually stay and get read uh, of the ones that are published. And so, um, and again, that's, again, why reading, read the ones, read, read the keepers. 
read the ones that are, I, I don't mean, you know, romance novels and stuff like that. I mean, you know, great, great fiction and great nonfiction, you know, and, and read them and say, am I, is this the kind of book I'm, I can capable of being, of, of writing and, and not be delusional about it. So, because it's, it's, and I'll tell you why. I mean, maybe that somebody enjoys writing their book and getting published and seeing their name on the spine and okay. Um, but the fact is that it, it, it it's actually a very exhausting process. It takes, it takes a lot out of you to do it right. And then if you do it, and I've seen this again and again and again and again, you know, people put their heart and soul into it and it takes years to do it and they finally get a publisher and it just dies. It dies, you know, and no matter what they do with their website and this and social media, it dies. It's just a dead book. And that's such a hard thing for people to experience, a very difficult experience. You know, I haven't had that experience, but, but I have enough friends who have. And it, it, it's not, it, it doesn't impel you further. It doesn't further you in your life. And it's like a road. It's like a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. And I know I'm supposed to be inspiring people to write books right now. Actually, I'm trying to inspire them not to, <laughs> unless they mean it, unless they're serious, you know? I think you're doing a lot of favors for readers out there, though, right now. Readers everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. through this. Yeah, I mean, I am a reader, avid reader. I mean, it takes, it takes less than five minutes to know whether I want to read a book, sometimes two. Hmm. you know, and you can just tell. It's like, nope. Mm-mm. And um, uh, and and so is everybody else that way. That's, the, that's why, you know. Yeah. It's just too many books. Well, I, I think you're writing, I mean, obviously you're the one sharing the perspective and I think your writing reflects it. I mean, I, I look at Draw Down and it's a beautiful book. It's a joy just to hold. Honestly, it's it's the pictures I, I didn't realize until i heard you say you picked every one of them but in every way it's it's gorgeous and then i see that um i mean i've been reading um the ecology of commerce uh-huh. and it's just mind expanding for me i mean encouraging me to look at things and i've loved conscious capitalism you know when i read it and i see this and i realize you know it was many years before yeah right and it's the thoughts are amazing and, and to see with natural capitalism that President Bill Clinton called it one of the five most important books in the world today. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so. it was uh, in Italy with uh, the Prime Minister. There was Prime Minister Morrow, I think, there, and there's four other heads of state, and he said that. The best book I think I've written, though, is Blessed Unrest. Really? Why do you think that's the best? Well, I enjoyed it the most. Um, but... Um, I, uh, you tell me. You have to if you read it. I'll, we'll, we'll talk some more. Okay. I just think it's um, it's a, it's the best written of all the books. And um, Drawdown, you know, I say editor, but actually I did a lot more than that. But but if I had said on the cover, you know, writer, author, you know, designer, I mean, that would be so stupid. And the fact is, I was editor, and I did that. And there's 220 some odd people who were created that book and their names are in there and their short bios are in there and they did create it. And so just because at the very end, 
Catherine Wilkinson and I were the final writer authors, you know, she's senior writer, you know, she's a senior writer, but I was also a writer. I didn't say that because I just, I, I didn't, because it is it, true, but it's not true, if you know what I mean. Because I yeah. couldn't have written it were it not for the work of, you know, 200 other people, 200 plus other people. It's all in that writing. And that's a little different than Blessed Unrest, where it's it's just uh, sole author. But if you look at the bibliography and the books I read, you know, like I would read vertical biographies, you know, like of, of Thoreau and Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, you know, and Emerson. And, you know, those, those, all those are in Blessed Unrest too, you know. Um, and so every book in that sense, you know, um, uh, rests on the, the minds and, and hearts and shoulders of, of dozens and if not hundreds of other people, um, always. Yeah. We're all, we're all connected. Yeah. Thank you so much for making time and giving so much time. A pleasure, right? Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.